0: So we're coming toward the middle end of the retreat at this point and everything in the room feels considerably more settled and still than the first nights. This evening I'd like to speak in a way that addresses where we are now in our practice and also that begins to address the movement of this mindfulness that we practiced and this understanding into the world outside. And I'd like to do that as a balance or, or as a connection with the last two evening's talks. Last night where Rodney spoke about silence and the silence that's outside of time. And the night before, the characteristics that are just here to be experienced. Those are a way both of stepping outside of the past and future and just being in the present. Another dimension of practice is the perspective that also teaches within time. And one of the central understandings for us to discover in ourselves is the power in the mind of conscious intention or purpose within time. The sense of energy or an intention in our inner life is fundamentally neutral. If you study Buddhist psychology, the will to do is a neutral energy that can be directed or shaped in skillful or unskillful ways. So the Dhammapada, the verses of the Buddha begins, Mind is the forerunner of all things. We are what we think. what mind creates. Speak or act with an impure mind or heart, and sorrow follows you as surely as the wheel of the ox cart follows the oxen that draws it. Mind is the forerunner of all things. We are created out of our thoughts. Speak or act with a pure heart or mind, and happiness follows you as surely and unshakably as your own shadow. So we imagine, as Rabindranath Tagore says, that our mind is a mirror, that it more or less accurately reflects what is happening outside of us. On the contrary, our mind itself is the principal element of creation. The power of mind is great, it, to create and to destroy. Remember, two nights ago, I talked about all those 28 civilizations from the Egyptian and the Sumerian to the contemporary ones, or our cities. Where did those come from? Somebody had the idea on this hillside to build a house, and then it became a mansion, and then it became a, uh, actually it was a place for, for a while, it was an ol- old person's home. And then somebody said, well, let's turn it into a Catholic monastery and envision that and put this part of the building there and extend that there and put a bowling alley there. <laughs> That's how it went, isn't it? Those <laughs> fathers knew what they were thinking about. But the whole city of New York is the same. First, somebody pictured, hmm, World Trade Center, about that high, I think, and drew it. And all these other people thought of it, and then they put it all together and built it. It's not just building it, however, as we know, that same power is the destructive power that was going to bomb Iraq back to the Stone Age during the Kuwait-Iraq War, or that has destroyed hundreds and thousands of cities and towns around the world by the force of prejudice and hatred and greed. So, this is the mind or the heart. It can create all kinds of things. Now, a long, long time ago, before you were born, there was a Buddha before this Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, named Dipankara Buddha. He was the prior Buddha to Siddhartha Gautama. And Dipankara Buddha was a magnificent expression of peace and compassion and awakening, such that wherever he walked through the Middle Kingdom of India, uh, people were amazed and inspired and awakened. And it happened that Dipankar Buddha was walking one day, coming to a, through a forest, to a great palace where he had been invited. And all the people of that area said, who's coming? A Buddha? We must make it beautiful for him. And they took the beautiful, most beautiful cloth they had, the, the silk, and the cotton, and the fabrics, the linen. And they laid a path for him through the forest so that he could walk without even getting his feet dirty on the floor of the forest. And he walked as a Buddha did, mindfully, beautifully. There was one young man there, <laughs> as Buddhists do, One young man there who said, Oh, a a Buddha's coming, I must see him. And he said, I'll do my part just at the last minute. Let me do some of the path. But it happened Dipankar was walking along before he had time to get the proper cloth to finish his part of the path. And there was mud in that. So he looked, what shall I do? And he lay himself down and he said, let the Buddha walk upon me. And in this way, I will provide ease for him and honor him. And this great being, Dupankara Buddha, walked along the path with this tremendous grace and beauty. And this young man looked at him and said, I will do whatever it takes. I hereby make a vow that whatever it takes to fulfill human existence like this Buddha, I too shall do. And as Dupankara Buddha walked across his body, He nodded and said yes in affirmation, having heard in his own heart this vow, yes, you too shall become a Buddha. So then, this young man practiced for a period of time, following that vow, of four immensities and a hundred thousand (laughs) mahakalpas. He practiced patience, the perfections of compassion, of truthfulness and integrity, of kindness, of steadiness of mind, of concentration, of uh, inquiry and, and wisdom. One Mahakalpa is described as the length of time. Some of you have heard this before. If you have a mountain as high as Mount Everest, seven miles high, seven miles wide, seven miles along, huge mountain, and every hundred years, a bird comes along with a silk scarf in its beak, and it drags the scarf along the edge of that mountain, Wearing it away. When that mountain is worn down by the bird, that is one mahakalpa. So, a hundred thousand mahakalpas in four immensities of patience, kindness, perfecting integrity, honesty for the fulfillment or the ripening of that vow. Traditionally, Buddhist teaching is filled with the understanding of the shaping or direction of mind, of the direction of intention. So one begins practicing by uh, uh, starting by saying, may this practice be of benefit to others. One ends it, as we will end this retreat, by sharing merit. May may all of the good deeds that we've done, the moments of kindness and truthfulness and mindfulness here, have benefit to ourselves and to the awakening of all other beings. So that intention is repeated. What kind of intentions do we see repeated in our society? Look at the magazines and television and newspaper, advertising. The intentions, you should have more, right? Instead of I vow to save all beings, it's I vow to get more income out of my savings or I vow to have more of this kind of product or have this wonderful vacation or these clothes. And so what we repeatedly direct our mind to in the society is consumerism and materialism and addictions of different kinds. And what we direct ourselves to, we get for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. Remember what, uh, I guess it was George Bernard Shaw said, he said that um, uh, about desire. He said, um, how does it go? Something like, oh, I can't remember the exact phrase, but, uh, the, there are two difficulties with desire, um, getting what you want. i um, not getting what you want and getting it. And e- either of those is difficult. Did, what did you do in school today? A father asked his teenage son. Oh, we had lectures on sex was the boy's reply. Lectures on sex, well, what did they tell you? Well, first there was a priest who told us why we shouldn't. Then a doctor told us how we shouldn't. (laughs) And finally, the principal gave us a talk on where we shouldn't. (laughs) You understand, huh? That whatever is repeated and directed becomes the way the mind is shaped. The power of intention of the heart is understood and taught from very young in the Buddhist countries um, through a series of stories called the Jataka tales, or the tales of the birth, uh, the birth stories of the Buddha before he was Siddhartha Gautama on those hundred thousand mahakalpas of um, training lessons. And again, a long time ago, before you were born in this incarnation, The Buddha was born as a beautiful parrot in the forest. All these children in Asia know these stories, they love them. And this parrot had resplendent feathers of every rainbow color. And because it was an abundant forest with much to eat, it was free to eat and fly and roam. And it had, she had a friendly heart. The Buddha was born as this beautiful parrot. And she made friends with all the other creatures. She was not eaten by them, nor did she eat them. She made friends with the wolf, and the bear, and the lion, and the mouse, and so forth. Well, one day, a storm came to this forest. And it was a dry storm, with thunderheads, and lightning, but not much rain. And the lightning struck a tree, and caught the tree on fire, and the tree spread. And pretty soon, In this dry forest that season, there was a great fire. And all the creatures smelled the smoke and started to run as fast as they could away from the fire, knew the danger. But the little ones, the mice and the small creatures didn't even know which way to run and it's very hard to run a great distance if you have tiny little legs. It is. And even the big creatures tried to run away, not for sure knowing the right direction. The winds were up, it was a big storm, the fire was blowing rapidly. And the dear parrot, she looked at her beloved forest and friends and saw the suffering that was coming to them and thought, what can we do? What can we do? She flew high up in the sky, saw the smoke and the flames and all the animals trying to run away toward the river at some great distance. Mostly wouldn't make it. And she flew over to the river and went down to the river and without much thought, ducked herself into the water thinking, I must help my friends, and got her feathers wet and flew back up through the smoke and flames of the fire, looked for some creature she knew, and flew down as close as she could, and shook her feathers, the little water that was on it, to give them some cooling. And then she flew back over the fire, and ducked into the river, and got her feathers wet, and flew again over the fire, again and again, a number of times, to save the friends that she could, as best she could, and to help put out the fire. That's all she could do. And as she did it, her wings got blackened and she got tattered. And the gods in the heavens who were busy enjoying themselves as gods (laughs) do, were seated. And one of them, one of the great gods, felt his seat become warm. And it said the seat of the gods becomes warm when something unusual happens on earth. So he said to the other gods, Have you noticed our seats are becoming warm and the gods looked <laughs> down and they saw the scene of the fire and the forest and the creatures running away and this bird, this parrot, dipping in the river and going through the smoke and flames and trying to find animals to drop these drops on, trying to put out the fire somehow. And they said, look at that silly creature. What can she do? But the great god Saka, who sat there, was strangely moved by this and said, I must look closer. And as he looked closer, given the great power of mind, he sort of leaned over and found himself falling through the air and turning into a great eagle as a form to look closer. And he flew down and came down near the fire and came near the parrot as she was ducking herself into the river and coming up and he said, what do you think you're doing? She said, I'm trying to help uh, put out the fire, but I don't have much time to talk now. Excuse me, Cat <laughs> flying. And he followed her and she found some creature and shook off the things and flew back through. And she ducked in again and he said, do you think this is gonna make any difference? And she turned to him and she said, advice is not what I need right now. <laughs> Are you willing to help or not? <laughs> and he kind of flew along and watched her again. And then she flew back to the river and back over the fire, getting more tattered. And he said, why do you keep this up? And she said, what else can I do if I can even help one creature? How could I not do it? And it stopped the eagle in flight. And he was somehow touched in his heart. And he thought, if I could not, if I could help even one creature, why would I not do so? And a tear began to roll down his cheek. And of course, as you know, when the gods begin to cry, it's not a small event. And the clouds that were there and the windstorms with the gods began to weep and the rain poured down, hissing on that which was hot, putting out the fire, saving the little tiny creatures and the large creatures and the whole forest. And then the eagle, in his own way, paid his respects flying around the parrot and said, you are indeed a great being. And he bowed to her in his way and honored her and said, I see for you a great future, and then flew back up to heaven. And that is how she put out the forest fire. (coughs) When the Buddha was in the palace growing up, as Mary described, in these beautiful circumstances, winter and summer palaces, all the best things guarded from the sufferings of the world. He went out in the streets to see what the world was really like and as Mary mentioned, he came across the four heavenly messengers. First he saw a very old person and said, who does that happen to? This charioteer said, why, everyone, if you're lucky. And then he saw a very sick person. He said, Who does that happen to in their filth? The charioteer said, Why, almost everyone. And then he saw a corpse, his first dead body. Remember the time you first saw a dead body? And he looked at that long and hard and said, And to whom does this happen? And the charioteer said, To everyone. And the fourth time he went out from the palace looking out in the land, the fourth of the messengers, He saw a yogi, a renunciate, a person with their head shaved, wearing a robe, a tattered robe. And he said, who is that person? And the charioteer said, that is a yogi, a renunciate, a monk, who has given up the normal life of the world to seek a freedom in the midst of all of birth and death, to find that great freedom that's possible, spiritual freedom of the heart in this life. And the moment that the Buddha saw that being, that monk, he took a vow again. He said, I too, in this life will seek that liberation, that freedom for myself and for all beings. Now, Ajahn Sumedho, my good friend who I mentioned with about the bees the other night, remember, um, who was the abbot in England, when he and Ajahn Shah first came to the West. They went to England and they came here to IMS in that first trip. They were invited to start a monastery in England by the um, English Sangha Trust. And all the English Sangha Trust had was sort of a rundown apartment in a sort of working class section of London that was kind of poor. But they took it, because that was what was offered and what monks do. And so Ajahn Chah left Sumedho there with one other junior monk to start a little monastery and part of the principle of their practice is to go out every day with an alms bowl to have people give food and so that's part of the practice of renunciation that you go and even if people don't give you food you simply go out every day it's also a way of educating people about the life of those who give up everything and are supported just by what comes so they would go out walking in the streets in London nearby or in the park every morning with their bowl, usually get nothing. After a while some of the kids talk to them and would, you know, put in an apple or something once in a while, but mostly nothing. One day Ajahn Sumedho was walking through the park with his begging bowl, kind of dignified way, and a man, an older man, came jogging by and he stopped, and looked at Ajahn Sumedho, and he said, what are you? Who are you? And Ajahn Sumedho said, well, I'm a forest monk uh, from the traditions of the forests of Southeast Asia and I'm out with my alms bowl as we do every morning in case people wish to offer food. Um, The man said well what are you doing in London here? He said well we've been offered this little apartment nearby by the Sangha Trust so that's our monastery but we really generally live out in the forests and more in the wilderness. The man looked at him and he said well I have a forest I've been planning to give away to someone to take care of, would you be interested in being trustee for this forest, this beautiful forest, some hundreds of acres? And they had a discussion at the end, he bowed to him. he said, then I hereby offer you this forest, come and see it. Right? So he didn't get much food, but he got 400 acres in Kent. That's kind of like getting 400 acres in Westchester County, or something like that, of exquisite land given. We asked Ajahn Chah why it was that he had his monks go out every morning with their begging bowls. And he said, of course, it's because it's their practice to learn renunciation, to teach people the lives of monks. But he said, there's another equally or maybe a more important reason. And that is that you must remember, he said to his monks, that you are the fourth of the heavenly messengers. so that when you go out, you don't know who will see you and what it will touch in them and what vow it might awaken in those other beings who see your presence. (coughs) The day for a monk is filled with the creation of intentions to awaken. You get up, bong bong, there's the gong in the middle of the forest. You wake up at three or three thirty AM, you come, you chant, you sit, you walk together, back in solitude. And the first things after you wake up is you do chanting, it so bogawara hung sambhuto. You honor the Buddha. I honor the awakening of the Buddha and the Buddha nature in all beings. I vow in this day to bring that awakening to my life and to the earth. I honor the Dharma, the awakening to the law. I honor the Sangha, that we all awaken together. So it's a praise to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha and that we might all awaken together. And then you dedicate your day dedicate, may, the, may what I do today bring merit to all, another vow you take. And then there's a chant, Gesa, Loma, Naka, Dajo, Tanta, which is hair on the head, hair on the body, nails, teeth, skin. You begin to chant the 32 parts of the body, liver, heart, intestines, blood, you know, lungs, all of that. You go through that and you chant that, to say, I do not possess this. It's just these parts operating. And may I remember this through the day and use this body that I've been given to awaken. And then you do a chant about the four heavenly messengers of sickness, old age, and death. Maranampi nampi Maranampi mara There is the suffering of death. We are all, every single one of us, to experience that, the suffering of aging. May I remember this and dedicate my life, knowing that there's aging and loss and death, to compassion and to freedom of the Buddha in the midst of it. It's like Thich Nhat Hanh who teaches these gatas or poems that one does even, you know, as you take a meal. May this meal bring the strength to awaken. Or as you drive before you get in your car, this little poem, I enter my car, may I drive in a way that brings safety and compassion to all beings. Or taking tea, may I take this cup of tea as an act of awakening. In each of these situations, there is a direction of moving from the small, limited sense of ourself and our agenda to this great possibility of awakening. And it's one of the two or three most beautiful experiences of my whole life, was to go out on alms round in the morning in the forests, in the villages of Thailand. You walk through the villages, especially when I was there um, at first, 25 years ago, um, in, uh, just as the sun is coming up on those little dikes in the middle of the rice paddies. and You come into a village, there was hardly any cars or trucks, there were cows and water, buffalo and, and dirt, dirt streets. And people would be waiting at sun up, kneeling in the dirt by their houses with the rice that they would just heated for their morning meal. And they'd wait as the monks came by and offer that rice and offer some food. And it was the most beautiful thing. Sometimes very, very poor people. But they would say, we want to give even of this little bit that we have to you because we so treasure awakening. And as you walk through the villages, you can't say thank you. You know, thank you for that mango. I really wanted a mango this morning. You know, thanks for that curry or something. You don't say anything. You do it in absolute, in utter silence. You just walk and receive it. You don't even bow back. You just take it. But what you can do, and in fact what you must do to feel good about taking their food, is as you receive their offerings, it becomes an intention. May I use this food to honor the awakening of compassion and freedom in myself and in all beings, to use it to awaken. The attainment of wholeness, says Carl Jung, requires one to stake one's whole being. Nothing less will do. There can be no easier conditions, no substitutes. No compromises. So the way that we live and shape our mind becomes our future. It becomes our habit, the karma of habit, over and over again. You know, I could see it because it's so profoundly clear when, when you die. I, I told you about my father who had been frightened and paranoid a lot in his life and when it came to the end of his life, There was a great deal of fear and it had been his habit so that he could hardly let himself sleep because he was afraid what would happen when he closed his eyes. You die in character, it said. That is, you die as you have lived. Sogyo Rinpoche in the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying gives some teachings on what it's like to die physically. that come from Kalu Rinpoche. I remember also hearing these from Kalu Rinpoche in a series of teachings that he gave to us, a group of uh, Western students some years ago. And He said, as you're lying there, coming close to death, there is a dissolution of the inner and outer elements. The earth element, our body begins to lose its strength. We're drained of energy. We cannot stay upright or hold anything or support our head. We feel as though we're falling, sinking underground, being crushed by a great weight, as if a huge mountain pressed on us. We're being squashed. We feel heavy, uncomfortable. We may be asked to be pulled up. Our teeth sink in. Dark stains appear. The aggregate of form, earth, dissolves. Then water. We begin to lose control of our bodily fluids. Our nose begins to run. We dribble. There can be discharge from our eyes. We become incontinent we can't move our tongue, our eyes start to feel dry in their sockets, our lips drawn and bloodless, our throat sticky, we tremble and twitch, our nostrils cave in, the smell of death begins to arise, or sometimes we feel as if we're drowning in an ocean of water being swept away by a river. And then fire, comes this great heat, our mouth and nose dry up, all the warmth of our body begins to seep away, usually from the feet and hands toward the heart. A steamy heat can rise from the crown of the head. Our breath gets cold as it passes our nose. We can't drink or digest anything. The of perception is dissolving. Confusion comes. And then in the middle of this, we can experience the in, inwardly that fire grows. We can feel we're being consumed in a flame in the middle of a blaze, even in the summer. And then the air becomes harder to breathe. The air seems to be escaping through our throat. We rasp and pant. Our breaths are short. Our eyes roll up. Breath becomes labored. And we feel ourselves slipping away from contact from the world. And then great winds arise that move our consciousness. So that to be awake in as powerful a process as that, or even as powerful a process as this retreat, requires the practice, the intention of staying awake in the midst of our life. Some of you may have read long ago the book about Ishii, who was the last of a particular Native American tribe in California. He was kind of befriended by some anthropologists at Berkeley and wrote, they wrote down his story and spoke of his life. And just before Ishi died, in that book it speaks of, he taught to the Kroger's who took care of him. Uh, one secret set of chants that the members of his tribe were asked, uh, vowed never to teach to anyone outside of their own numbers. And the particular chants and teaching that he taught them, he had to teach them, because they were the songs and the chants that would sing you to your ancestors when you had died. And since he was the last of his tribe, no one else could do that for him. And so he had to entrust those secret songs and chants. To these people who were the people that had destroyed his tribe, so that when he died they could be with him and sing him to his ancestors. Whether it's death or life, it's really kind of the same thing, isn't it? We sit here each day is a new day we're born, each sitting is a new sitting. We are asked To bring ourselves fully to awaken in this life in the present. When the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, he put his hand on the earth, touched the earth, and he asked the goddess of the earth for that support that he said, I will not get up until I'm awakened. And he'd he'd done all of the proper preparation. It wasn't kind of like the first time this happened. But he said, I feel really ready. I ask for the support from from the goddess, from the earth, to bear witness to this vow, this intention. And then he sat on that night through everything, through every temptation and every difficulty that could be thrown at him and held it all, touched it all with compassion until finally all of the fire and aggression that he, that Mara would throw at him, every difficulty, he just met with the heart of compassion and it turned to flowers at his feet. He sat in the midst of that. And then in the middle of the night, he looked deeply and saw all his past lives, whether you believe it literally or as a metaphor, it doesn't matter. We have many lives in this lifetime, don't we, each day. And he saw them created according to karma, how he acted, created the conditions that would happen in the future and how others would treat him from birth to birth. And then he looked and saw the lives of other beings over and over. And finally in the center of that, He found that place where he stepped out of the cycle of suffering and reaction of birth and death, out of that small sense of self, and came to nirvana, to perfect peace and compassion, where he wanted nothing in the midst of that all, where he had untangled himself from all those reactions and that whole sense, small sense of self, and he became free. Now, our practice isn't to honor that, but it's to re-experience that in ourselves as the Buddha. When we awaken, (coughs) we also discover that what we find, that freedom, was always here. It's no place else. It's always here. However, even though it's always here, we find that we need to reawaken over and over. Enlightenment after enlightenment, someone said. Or another teacher said, today's satori is tomorrow's mistake. (laughs) That you can't get it. Well, now I had that enlightenment yesterday. But rather it comes again and again, moment to moment enlightenment. I have some friends who've done long practice in the Buddhist tradition where they do dream yoga. Where you cultivate the, the power of being awake during dream time and lucid dreaming. And the way that dream yoga is done, it's done in the middle, for example, it's taught in the middle of a three-year Tibetan retreat after a couple of years of very intensive practice. And part of the awakening of lucid dreaming, of that power to stay awake, comes from all the practice you do prior to it. And then for two or three weeks as you start dream yoga, you make the resolve over and over during the day, I will be awake and fully aware as I fall asleep. I will be fully aware as I dream. And you say that over and over and over again. And then at some point, after a few weeks of reciting that with some other vows and prayers, guess what happens? And And the powerful concentration that's developed is that you're awake during dreams. Intention in meditation is very strong when concentration gets strong. So that in the kind of deeper levels of meditation and the teacher training that one might do in Asia in certain monasteries or certain points in practice, the mind becomes quite malleable. And if you're really concentrated, uh, you can direct it quite quickly. And you may say as you sit and you get still, may rapture arise and you just make that vow and your body's filled with rapture. May uh, concentration arise and you become very steady. Or you may direct, in that malleability, the intention to say, may I see uh, the arising and passing of all things, as I've seen before, this very deep experience of all things like dissolving and appearing. And if you have very deep presence and concentration, and you make that intention, it appears before you. It's quite a wonderful thing. May I be filled with light. Guess what happens? Filled with light, as a yogi. So that's part of, kind of, advanced training (laughs) in meditation. (laughs) But it's there, and then it's worth talking about, because it's not that far away. I mean, um, certain people have temperaments that allow them to concentrate easily, certain don't. And you don't need those experiences to become wise. But for a percentage of people who do yogic, meditative, Vipassana practice, and so forth, for a certain percentage that happens over time. And I talk about it more to give you a sense that there are all these direct ways to work with intention. Now there are limits to it, the Buddha said. Suppose you were to make the intention, I won't grow old, (laughs) or that I won't die. He said, it's like a man who comes along and brings a, a stick with fire on it, says, I'm going to light the Ganges River on fire, or with a shovel and a bucket and says, this great earth, I'm going to dig this earth up so there's no more earth. Would he get very far in either of those cases? Not so, my friends. Similarly, one cannot take a vow or set an intention for that which goes against the Dharma, against the laws of nature. You can't say, I will not grow old or I will not die. What, or no more than an apple seed can say, I will be a mango tree. But an apple seed can be part of the intention to be the most beautiful apple tree, the most fecund apple tree. We can water and fertilize and bring the proper temperature and plant the seed in the right place. So for us, what's possible to manifest for a human being is the most beautiful human being. And in some way, the word Buddha is simply a word for beautiful being. You have this beauty within yourself that is the most beautiful compassion and freedom that is your own nature. And that is what's possible. So there are vows that are often taken. In the Zen tradition or the Mahayana tradition, one begins um, by taking vows such as uh, the the four great vows. um, Sentient beings, beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. I vow to master all of the desires and passions of the world. I vow to master all of the teachings of the Dharma. I vow to fulfill the unfulfillable Buddha's way. All these kind of almost endless vows. Now, what does it mean to make that kind of a vow or intention? This, the great Zen ancestor Wei Nung says, My friends, we take these vows to, to save or bring freedom to an infinite number of beings, but what does it mean? Does it mean I, Hui Nung, am going to go out and deliver them all? And who are these beings but reflections of our own mind? the deluded mind, the fearful mind, the greedy mind, each of them must be delivered by that great awakening that is our own. In that sense, whatever intentions we create is not just for ourselves, but for all beings. We can't do it separately. Any moment of awakening or kindness here, or the cumulative moments when you leave the retreat, affect your family and your friends and the way that you act in the world. I was recently with a friend, Clarissa Estes, who's writ- written that book about women who run with the wolves at a conference um, where we were teaching together. And she got up to give a series of talks, beautiful talks about working with death as an advisor in life. Um, and at one point she started, she said, I want to tell you about my own Jungian analyst. She said, I work with an old man, professor of Asavada, who was an Indian man. And when I first went to work with him in his apartment, he had a little th- kind of thing on the wall um, and framed. And I went over to look and I said, what's that? And he said, oh, that's my uh, certificate for being a Jungian analyst. So I went to look closely because it was very small and it was handwritten and it said, to whom it may concern, you know, V.K. Visavara is a Jungian analyst. I say so, Carl Jung. Right? <laughs> But she said what drew her to work with this man (laughs) was that she was at a big gathering of Jungians. She was just beginning to study this in Zurich. And Switzerland is a pretty formal culture. And the Jungian culture is also a very formal and staid culture in a certain way. She said there was a meeting and they were talking about transference and what you get in how you work with patients. And someone was speaking and saying, what the Jungian analyst brings to the patient is... Um, a kind of grace or blessing, that they're there and they're willing to listen and hear whatever that person has to say and by the presence of the analyst that person grows and flowers and opens. And she said, Professor Vasa- Vasaura was raising his hand and no one saw him, He's this tiny little Indian man, so finally he stood on his chair and raised both his hands, a very un thing to do, <laughs> and they called on him And he said, my friends, he said, it is not we who give the grace to those patients to come to see us. He said, it is they who bring us grace and we would die without it. And it's true. It's true in our interviews. I mean, it's a long day to do interviews and it is so wonderful because we get to sit and have the grace of what you, what you discover, or what you suffer, or what you work with. So, we awaken together. It's never separate. Now, in the monastery, there are the regular ways of doing this. The, the refuges are recited two, three times a day. May I awaken like the Buddha. We do it over and over. The precepts are recited. I vow to not harm through speech or action, over and over. Forgiveness practices are done regularly. Confession is done, not because of sin, but I've, I've fallen asleep, I've broken vows in this way. I again take the vows to awaken. We do it over and over again. So, to set intention is not a matter of once or twice, okay, I'm going to awaken. Oh, this isn't the story I was looking for. It's said that long ago in a valley, seven white doves lifted off from this valley and flew across the valley and brought a great sense of peace and flew up to the mountaintop. A number of generations later, oh one more thing about that, on the last of the seven birds there was a black spot on its wing. A number of generations later the same story was told on a magical day in the summer Seven great birds lifted off from this valley and flew to the mountaintop. But the birds were all black. (coughs) You know the game of telephone when you're a child. There was a little black spot and it became the black birds. You can't do it one time. The setting of intention will get lost if it's one time. But it's done over and over again. To feel, renew that possibility that we can awaken. Even in the midst of difficulty, Rabindranath Tagore's poem, I thought my road had come to its end, and the time come to take shelter in a silent obscurity. Everything was at its end. But I find thy will knows no end in me. And when old melodies die out on the tongue, new melodies burst forth from the heart. Even in difficulty, is the possibility of immense freedom and the freedom the Buddha discovered was here and now for anyone. Where I live in California, Spirit Rock Center is in Marin County, is not so far from the largest prison in California, which is San Quentin. And some of the Sangha members work in San Quentin, doing various things there. This is a letter not from one of our community members, but from uh, another person who I just barely know, a teacher who runs a group in the prison named Gary Zukoff, a writer. And he wrote it to the people in San Quentin a little bit after the time of the Los Angeles uprising or riots, whatever you call it. He said, my dear soul brothers, I think of you often and I miss you. Our time together was the best men's group I've ever attended. Imagine that. He said, And I'm so happy to have made our connection. I've been watching the LA riots, as many of you must, with many great feelings. Looking at all the actors involved, Rodney King, Reginald Denny, the police, the rioters. The most wonderful aspect of this drama for me was Rodney King's talk on television. Is it not remarkable how the journey that he has taken through a terrible and humiliating beating has allowed him to be able to give a message of love, reconciliation, and healing to the entire world with an authority that not one human being can deny him? Can you imagine the impact that would result if Reginald Denny joined together with Rodney King in asking the human family to live together? consciously and lovingly. My friends, the same thing is possible for you. Can you appreciate that you are living in one of the most intense environments of fear and separation on this earth? And do you not see that it too, your experience in San Quentin prison will give you the inner understanding, can give you the inner understanding and authority to live and act and speak in this world that no one can deny you and that needs it so much. Of course, I'm suggesting that this is exactly the case. So the freedom that the Buddha speaks of is not far away. And the power of that intention and the power of the heart, of the mind, is to discover that again and again where we are. Now, the danger in this talk about intention is that you might confuse intention with will or effort. I'm going to make myself this way. I'm going to make myself into a Buddha. I'm going to make myself <laughs> compassionate. You know, I'm going to make myself concentrate and have those experiences he talked about, right? Or, I'm, or whatever it happens to be. And that's not what I'm talking about. That's fighting against yourself, that struggle. There's really only one intention or effort that is at the heart of all of these words tonight. And that is simply the intention to awaken. May I be present and awake and free to what is so just now. May I remember who I really am. The face before you were born. That book, Alan Watts' book that he wrote on the taboo against knowing who you are. May I remember who I really am, pretending we sleep, believing we sleep, believing we awaken, when all along something in us knows what's true, knows who we are. So the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and when the morning star arose, and he felt utterly free, he said, seeking but not finding the builder of this house, I wandered for a long time. But now, house builder, you are seen at last. You shall not build the house of sorrow again. The rafters are broken. The ridgepole is shattered. My mind is free, open, boundless. Come to the end of every kind of bondage. You know what the Buddha did then? he got up from the seat and he walked to some distance from the tree and he stood there for seven days and he just gazed at the Bodhi tree with gratitude and appreciation. Just looked at the Bodhi tree for seven days with appreciation for that spot. Then he did, there's places where he did his walking meditation and if you go to Bodh Gaya where this tree is, again this is a great myth, it's one of the world myths, so you needn't take it literally, but it's fun to talk about it in that way. And who knows, it might be true. Anyway, if you go there, there are these beautiful stone lotuses near the side of the Bodhi tree that are set in the ground, which are his walking path. It's a stone lotus for every step the Buddha took. We become what we seek. We are what we seek. What we seek most deeply is our true nature. Everyone knows that the drop merges into the ocean. Few remember that the ocean merges into the drop. That what we seek is our true nature. And it has a wonderful power when we rest in that to transform the world around us. So my good friend and teacher who's been here a number of times, Mahagosananda, a Cambodian monk who is now the patriarch of Cambodia, led a peace walk during the elections in Cambodia about six months ago. Through the mountains, through the Khmer Rouge territory, with a number of other monks and nuns and lay people, five hundred people walked. They rolled a grenade out at them and machine gunned them when they were in this temple, and people were injured. And They just kept walking. They said, if we, who practice peace, can't bring peace to this country, who else could do it? So they walked. And people would come, even the soldiers would come and put their rifles down by the side of the road and bow when they walked by and say, please, we don't want to kill anyone anymore please help us find peace and his intention he said with every step we make the intention may this walk may our steps bring peace to this land and that was the chant they did the vow may our walk bring blessings and peace from every step i kind of wonder why the pope and the head of the eastern orthodox church you know and the great sheikhs and mullahs from the t- temples in turkey and cairo don't all go hand-in-hand together and walk through Bosnia you know and say stop this Martin Luther King I still believe that standing up for truth is the greatest thing in the world this is the end of life the end of life is not to be happy the end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain The end of life is to do the will of God, to live in that truth, come what may. So that's the expression of the bodhisattva. And really this whole talk is about bodhisattva. Sattva means being and bodhi is awakened. Bodhisattva is that being who has committed themselves to awakening in the midst of any circumstance. Even if the sun should arise in the West and the world be turned upside down, my vow, my commitment is to bring compassion and freedom and awakening to this moment, to all beings. You know, when you go to India, if you go to Delhi, outside of Delhi, along the Ganges River, there's a big park that's the memorial and tomb for Mahatma Gandhi, this big great green lawn that goes down to the Ganges River. And at one end of the lawn away from the river is a great wall of stone. And carved in the stone are just a few words from Gandhi. And it says something like, before you act, Think of the poorest person you have met and ask yourself will this act be of benefit to them? This was Gandhi's intention and he did it over and over in his life. That was his vow and that was his intention. So I ask you as we end this evening's talk to consider your own mind. And more than that, to consider your own heart. And to sense what intent, with what intention do you do this retreat? Do you leave this retreat? Do you live in your family or your community? Do you do your work? With what intention do you direct this life that you've been given? So let your eyes close and sit up if you would. It's very important that you understand the essence of intention, which is beauty. That it's not to say, oh, I shouldn't judge, or I shouldn't do this, or I shouldn't eat so much, or I should do, th- I should do this. You know, that's kind of the small mind. But the kind of intention of the Bodhisattva is really the intention that loves beauty and grace and mercy. May I awaken and may I bring the spirit, the great heart of a Buddha, awake in all things in this life. So I end with a poem that is not a Buddhist, but a Christmas poem, because it's important to honor that this awakening has so many forms. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky, you know that same star that was there for the Buddha seemed to be there in Bethlehem, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, may the work of Christmas year round begin, to find the lost, to heal the broken to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild our nations, to bring peace among peoples, to make music in the heart, and to find freedom in the world.